0: Paul, an Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, This is the word of the
1: Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're here today as a Christian, which I take to be the majority of us, given this is, after all, a church service, let me ask you a question. What word would you most commonly use to identify, to describe yourself as a Christian? We might say, I'm saved. I'm a convert, a believer, a follower, a servant, a child of God, a blood-bought adopted son or daughter of the King. And all of these are true, and most of these I myself have used, uh, except the blood-bought adopted son or daughter. It's just too long. But all of these are missing the main way that the Bible speaks about what it means to be Christian. The main way, the language that the scriptures, the Bible uses to describe us as Christians, the way that towers over any other description is the language of being in Christ what theologians call union with Christ in Ephesians alone which is the letter we're spending the next 10 or so weeks in Paul's church to the a letter to the ancient church in Ephesus modern day Turkey in this letter 39 times in six short chapters he describes Christians as being in Christ in Jesus in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, united to Christ, so on, so forth. Chapter 1, verse 1, To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ. Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 32 Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The examples abound. Who are you? Who are I? Well, as Christians, we are people who are in Christ. And if that's true, if this is the way that the Bible speaks about Christians so much more than any other way that it's like Everest compared to Bluff Knoll, why do you or I not use that language? Well, to begin with, I think it's because it's kind of a little bit weird. Oh, I mean, we get what it means to follow or to serve or to be obey or to be with or to be under Christ kind of makes sense. But what does it mean to be in Christ? And and if that is is, is our question this morning, which I want it to be our question this morning, what does it mean to be in Christ? Then Ephesians is the book for us, and specifically chapter 1, because Paul begins his letter, verses 3 to 14, a little bit of that we're going to focus on today, with an extended meditation on what it means to be in Christ. And such is the Apostle Paul's Paul's joy, his delight as he ponders this great truth that he's kind of almost like a loved, crazed poet that can't stop writing about his beloved. It's kind of the breathless prose of the besotted. In fact, such is Paul's passion in chapter 1 that it verges, it doesn't get there, but it verges on incoherence in the original language, in Greek. In fact, so worked up as Paul, as he reflects on this union with Christ, that his sentences kind of gush over. They run into one another and get all mixed up. He struggles to find room on the page to fiddle his thoughts. In fact, here's, a, here's something you can use in a quiz one day. This is, I think, as far as I'm aware, the longest single sentence in Greek in the entire New Testament. So the original um, New Testament was written in Greek, if you hadn't, if you didn't know that. And this, verses 3 to 14 has no punctuation, it's one sentence, which means I think it's probably meant to, and Sarah did an excellent job of reading, by the way, but it's, it's probably, or at least this is how Paul would have, because he dictated, if you didn't know, Paul dictated, he's got a dude writing it, called an amanu, amanuensis, this is probably, I imagine, how Paul dictated it in, in English, his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made it known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and under the earth. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were first to what our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you were believed and you were marked with him in the seal of the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. <gasps> oh, you don't envy the guy that was trying to take notes. I'm going to take a sip of water after that. And as enjoyable as it would be to get carried away with our apostle and spend the six hours next six hours, poring over this, we're just going to focus on verses 3 to 6. So, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. And more simple still, we're going to look at just two things. What it means, as people united to Christ, what it means to be blessed in Christ, and what it means to be chosen in Christ. Blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ. We start with blessed, First 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I remember probably seven, maybe eight years ago now, there was a space, some might even call it a kind of virtual infestation of Instagram posts with the hashtag blessed. And they ordinarily accompanied a photo, appropriately filtered, of a picturesque location, beach, sunset, maybe with a bronzed and toned bikini bod in the background or an engagement ring in the foreground. In fact, so ubiquitous everywhere that they became a kind of meme, it kind of started to become an internet kind of sensation, and people began mocking it. Now, even if you have <clears throat> never trod virtual foot into the bear trap that is Instagram, you probably know the type of photo that I'm talking about. And it captures, I think, what most of us mean most of the time when we use the word blessed. If that is the case, it's worth asking, where, where is Paul? Paul, who spends so much of sort of talking about blessings, where is he when he speaks of these spiritual blessings? Is he in kind of an ancient resort in the Mediterranean, just him kicking back with Tychicus, sunbathing on the beach? Well, no, there's a reason why the letter of Ephesians is known as one of Paul's prison letters. He was imprisoned when he wrote this. Chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. So here is Paul in a gingy prison somewhere in the ancient Roman world, writing to the Ephesians, speaking to them of every spiritual blessing. what's going on? Is Paul kind of being deceptive? Has he being so long chained up that he's starting to become deluded? No, the key to understanding these is the, the, the qualifier, spiritual, spiritual blessings. Paul is not promising here, as many false teachers over the last 50 years have promised, physical blessings. This is not a God promising beach holidays, bullion, Bulgari, and Bentleys. Sorry to disappoint, but these are not the promises in Christ. And if we are a little disappointed by that, perhaps we weren't hoping for Bentleys and Bulgari, but nonetheless we were hoping for some solid physical blessings. I suspect that our disappointment betrays the fact that we have been tricked by fool's gold, that Satan has sold us a counterfeit which we have taken for the real thing. Don't get me wrong. Physical blessings are necessarily a good thing. I'm not diminishing that. God gives us good gifts. But many of us take physical blessings as the true blessings And spiritual blessings are kind of like option number two, things that you kind of console yourself with when the other blessings are hard to find. But for Paul, that's precisely the wrong way around. It's spiritual blessings that are preeminent. If so, what are they? Well, they're benefits, they're gracious gifts that God gives us in Jesus. To start with, they're us being chosen in Him, forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to God, being called by name as a child of God, standing to inherit a glorious inheritance. They are, in fact, what the next 11 verses unpack for us. And here's a little, little known fact for you, or factoid. Uh, like, pound for pound, kind of relative to side, Paul speaks in Ephesians, this letter, of his 13 or so letters, he speaks in this letter more about riches and inheritance than he does in any other letter, relatively speaking. But he does that not ignorant of the fact. He does that not ignorant of the fact that we are to quote the great reformer John Calvin, we are too stupid and our minds are too brutish to understand what is actually being promised. Now, Paul's self-aware enough of this. Have a look at verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, knowing that we far more readily understand physical blessings than spiritual ones, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Paul knows that we need our eyes opened to true riches. And they really are true riches. I mean, they might not be Bentleys and beach holidays, but they're kind of doomed to fade away anyway. What's on offer here is lasting and eternal joys. In fact, for a moment, think about Paul's language. His most common language in this letter to describe this is the language of inheritance. Inheritance. And the value of an inheritance, if you didn't know, is determined by the benefactor. Often, unfortunately, the deceased one. They've got a lot, you get a lot. It's kind of how it works. And follow the logic there. If we are, as he stresses, if we're adopted children of God, then our inheritance is nothing less than what is God's, which is nothing less than. Well, literally everything. The universe itself is insufficient as an inheritance. Let me make that clear. We as Christians stand because of our union with Christ to inherit, to receive, to enjoy forever literally every good thing. Now, our little minds can't grasp that and kind of we bend enough and it just kind of snaps. But it means that the problem with the prosperity gospel, that is that teaching all about physical blessings in the here and now, the, the problem with that is not that it promises too little, not that it promises too much, rather, but that it promises too little. You see, why promise some cheap joy that will only, at best, at best last 70, 80 years, when actually what's offered to you in Christ Jesus are eternal delights. To focus on physical blessings is to like muck around in the pigsty and neglect the castle in the background that's actually yours. Now, now Paul, as he's describing these blessings, describes them as being in the heavenly realms, which does mean, it does mean that these are blessings, joys, delights that we will only fully experience, either when we die and go to heaven or when Christ Jesus comes back, if that happens before we die. But this is the bit that's often misunderstood, and this is the bit that I think is immensely important for understanding the Apostle Paul here, and throughout his corpus, throughout his kind of body of work, his letters. Even though those blessings are fully experienced only then, we still genuinely, even if partially, nonetheless genuinely experience those spiritual blessings now. That is to say, those spiritual blessings don't stay up there never touched, they trickle down. And why is that the case? Because for Paul, and this is key particularly for Ephesians now, for Paul, the earthly realm and the heavenly realm touch. What do I mean by this? Well, as kind of modern people, that's just who we are living in the 21st century, we tend to think of the border between the earthly and the heavenly as fixed and impermeable. But for Paul, it's more porous than that. We think concrete, he thinks skin. We think solid, he thinks membranous. The heavenly realms, for for both good and for ill, touch this world. You see the dark side of this in chapter 6, verse 12. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to flick there of Ephesians six twelve. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says the destruction and degradation, the violence and chaos of this here world, that crookedness and corruption is not just, not simply, not reducible to the interplay of mass and matter, flesh and blood. He says you won't understand it, you can't understand it until you know that there is a deep and cosmic spiritual angle. But it's not just the evil that kind of leaks and creeps down. There are, of course, angelic forces for the good that do that same thing. But far more significantly than that, there is, of course, God himself. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, and then Acts 2, Pentecost, Christ has sent his spirit And it's this indwelling Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that is, that functions like a foretaste of our heavenly inheritance and also a guarantee. Have a look at 13 and 14 of chapter 1 now. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So for the Apostle Paul, that means that that through the Spirit, we know Christ's presence now, even though it will only be in heaven that we see him face to face. Through that same Spirit, God works holiness, purity, and wholeness in us now, even if it won't be perfected, until we reach heaven's doors. Through the Spirit, God genuinely whispers comfort to our soul, even though it will only be on that last day that Christ's scar-pierced hands wipe away our tears and His pierced side touches ours in eternal embrace. In fact, so powerful, so assured, is the work of the Spirit now that Paul will use the most extravagant language possible in chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says this of the believer, those in Christ, you and me, now. And God raised us up, not will raise, not hopefully one day, God raised, past tense, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It's not just that the blessings of the Spirit come down, but such is those blessings in the power of the Spirit that we are raised up. Paul is not exaggerating when he says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Blessed in the heavenly realms, but that touches ours through the work of the Spirit now. And if that sounds all a bit too kind of abstract, kind of philosophical, let me kind of ground that idea kind of more concretely. Because it's my experience for my seven-odd years of pastoral experience and 37 years of life, it's my experience that says that that membrane between heaven and earth, that membrane is at its thinnest during or after times of pain and suffering. It can go one of two ways. It is often there in our darkest hours where God is blamed, souls are lost, and darkness conquers, reaching through that thin membrane. But so too is it true that it is there where God draws most nearest. It is there that we realize when rock bottom actually has another layer and then another layer and then another layer. At that bottom layer, many of us experience our hidden God to begin to reveal his face. It is there that the fleeting pleasures of life lose their taste And to quote my esteemed colleague Scott, we begin to smell what heaven is cooking. And flip it around, it's in times of immense physical blessing that often the spirit is at his quietest, where that membrane between heaven and earth is thickest. The lives that are most hashtag Instagram blessed are so often the lives that are least spiritually blessed. It's not for no reason that time and time again we are told to rejoice in our sufferings because God draws near. Point one, we are blessed in Christ. Point two, we are chosen in Christ. For he chose us, verse four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Paul should really have had a trigger warning at the top of these verses. Because if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you know that he is touching on one of if not the most controversial teaching of the Bible. The dreaded P word. Predestination. If you've avoided the wars over predestination, God bless you, my child. Let me give you a bit of a definition. Predestination is the teaching that God elects or chooses us before we choose Him, that God makes the first move, that our union with Christ is ultimately and most fundamentally a function of his pleasure and will, not ours. It's not that we didn't make a real choice, not denying that, but that most fundamentally it's his choice, not ours. And I think our reflexive response, my reflexive response when I first really encountered this in university was a bit of a gag reflex. We don't really like that idea, many of us, and so... Verses like Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 become verses that are ignored or explained away or that we think that we'd actually be better off without. And the objections to this doctrine of predestination range from the kind of more benign and mild to... Well, rather, from the mild, which sounds something like, well, that, that doesn't seem right. That hasn't been my experience of my faith. I, I chose God, not the other way around. I'm not sure that really is right in my experience. That's the kind of mild objection to the more outraged. How dare you say that God chooses us? That is so unfair. It should be my choice, not his. I mean, doesn't that make us, I don't know, robots or something? Where's our free will? Where's our freedom in this teaching? And I get the weight of some of those objections. I myself held them for a time. And for those of you here who have objections, of of whom there will be many, I suspect, there are good, very good theological and philosophical responses that you can give to these objections. But I'm not going to give them to you this morning. Partly because talk is cheap and time is short. But also because I don't think the, the fundamental answer is found through logic, and philosophy. It's found in the Scriptures themselves in the Bible. God choosing has always been the way. It's true of the 12 disciples chosen by Christ, true of Paul struck on the road to Damascus, but go farther back. True of Abraham, did God call Abraham or did Abraham call God, true of Moses, did God call Moses or did Moses call God of Samuel, of Elijah, of Isaiah? Indeed, Israel herself, God says, I chose you and set my love and affection upon you. God's love moves us before we move towards him. God's love moves us before we move towards him. And that has always been the way. You don't need a couple of proof texts, a couple of verses like Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 to 11. You just need the whole Bible. And this means two things, I think. One, it means for you and me, we have absolutely no grounds for boastful pride. Because even our belief, our faith, is from Him. It's extremely hard to take credit for something that happened before the foundation of the world. We weren't doing a lot back then, were we? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Predestination is a source of humility, but it's also a source of praise and joy. Paul ends his meditation, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We're a Presbyterian church, which you may or may not know. And that means as a Presbyterian church, we've got a a confession of faith called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a document that we think does a pretty good job of summing up the important bits of the Bible. And this confession says this about this teaching. This doctrine affords praise, reverence, admiration of God, humility, diligence, and abundant consolation. Praise, reverence, admiration, humility, diligence, and abundant consolation. But you you might ask, well, how? Kind of why? Why do Paul and Presbyterians alike praise such a perplexing and problematic teaching as this? For this reason. Because it means he's got you. If he chose you, he's got you. You see, if it's down to your choice, well, you know you. You've met you before. You chop and change like the seasons. If it's down to your performance, well, that's as variable as the tides. If it's down to your love, is that before coffee or after coffee love? Is that under stress or on holiday love? Is that Wednesday Arvo love or Friday Arvo love? But if it's down to his choice, down to his will, his love, well, that's as fixed as the stars, surer than the rays of the sun, more unchanging than the elements themselves. But that does leave a question. Some think the Achilles heel of this teaching, this understanding. You may have thought it yourself how do I know if I'm chosen? This sounds great, but how do I know that's me? This isn't a comfort. This is a terror, Matt. And can I say, it would be. It would be a source of terror if that were the right question to ask. But it's not the right question to ask. Because the question is not whether or not You or I are chosen, whether or not you or I are loved, whether or not you or I are a son or a daughter of our heavenly Father. The real question is whether or not Christ is, whether or not he is chosen, whether or not he is loved, whether or not he is treasured by God. Why? Why? Because all of what is said by Paul is all tied to, our big theme, of being found in Christ. Verse 3, for he chose us in him. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's about him, not us. I'm not denying that this is incredibly hard to kind of get your head around, particularly as we live in a time and a space and a place where everything is about us. Believe in yourself, be true to yourself, love yourself. It's even in our names, iPhone, iPad, me time. It's all about me, me, me. But Ephesians 1 reminds us that actually, no. No, no, it's about him, him. Him. All these blessings are because he chose us in him. Am I loved by God? Well, that can depend on the day we're having, can't it? But here's the actual question. Is Jesus loved by God? Of course he is. He's the eternal Obedient, beautiful, glorious Son in perfect relationship with the Father. Of course Jesus is loved by God. Amen and amen. Well, if we are in Christ, if the Father looks at the Son and sees Him, but also sees us in that same Son, if you can't separate us from Him, then, well, if it's obvious that Jesus is loved by the Father, then it's so obvious that we are loved by the Father. He could no more stop loving us in Christ than he could stop loving his only begotten son. There would probably be people here this morning that are dogged by the question whether or not I've been chosen, whether or not I've done enough, tried hard enough, had faith enough. Those that look at the mirror and say, how could God love? How could God choose me? The answer is not to think more of yourself, to grow in your self assurance and self esteem. It's to abandon the whole condemned effort altogether. Stop looking at you. Start looking at Christ. Look at him in his majesty, his wonder. His dread glory, His holiness, His beauty, His power, His authority, His glory. You see, see that. Know that is Christ. And that is ours in Him. You see, drink that up. And you'll be intoxicated by that picture. Like Paul, you'll be unable to think straight. You'll stumble over your sentences. You'll be loved, crazed, and that little eye that is you will be swallowed up by the cosmic he that is him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with Father in heaven, I pray that you might open my eyes, that you may open our eyes to see the treasures, the blessings, the eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ. But more than that, Father, I pray that you might give us the eyes to see the beauty of your Son. I pray that we might be held in wonder and in awe as we gaze upon his holiness, his grace, his love, his heart, his compassion, his kindness, his mercy. Pray that we might be so consumed by that vision of him, so filled in our heart by your spirit, so overwrought and overjoyed in the joys of heaven that are promised to us, that we might be a people that know our assurance in him. In Jesus' name. Amen.